Good morning, church. Text about money. How do we feel about that? We put it in the church email and you still showed up, so I blame you. Today, um, as Robin read for us, we're going to be camped out in the book of Ecclesiastes, so if you would turn there with me. Psalms is the big one you'll easily find. Proverbs comes after Psalms, and then Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs. Today we're going to let the wisdom literature of God's Word guide us and tell us the best way to engage with money. We don't have to be nervous, um, because at the same time, we're going to see it's really not about the money. Okay, so we're not going to really dig into a lot of specifics. We're not really going to talk about tithing. We're not, I'm not going to tell you what to do exactly with your money. Instead, it's going to be a little more conceptual. Because I think the wisdom of God today has us zooming out a bit with where we conclude. Okay, so I think money, money is the application. That's the thing we can relate to today. But I think it's helping us understand something bigger, and that is contentment in Christ today. So I'm going to give you kind of the conclusion You can stay if you want to, or you can leave after this. The conclusion of what I hope we see today from this text is that when we're not content in Christ, it sets us up to interact with money foolishly. That's the correlation here from wisdom literature. When we're content in Christ, we'll be able to engage with money wisely. I think that's what what the richness of this wisdom literature wants us to see. Okay, so we will we'll look at some common, just wise ways to deal with money, some concepts. But we'll also kind of weave in and out of some, some well-known texts. When you think about the Bible and money, the, you probably think of these texts. We'll, we'll visit those because I want us to see the direct connection between, <clears throat> excuse me, between money and contentment. All right, I think we, could, we, we know these verses a little bit. We, we kind of know they involve money, but really they usually involve the desire to be rich, not money in and of itself, the temptation, the negative, and there's usually a picture of contentment somewhere in that. So we're going we're gonna to visit some of those today. Um, but again, I think, I think what we'll see here is it's not completely about the money, and I think we'll be better equipped to deal with money from this text. All right, so pray with me. Lord, will you just help us see you today for who you are? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, may we seek you because you are wisdom. May you open our eyes to how you want us to live with this knowledge and awareness. Lord, may your word come out clear today. Will you, will you limit distractions this morning and help us, help us see you? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a little context first. If you look at Ecclesiastes 1.1, just a little bit of context, kind of, kind of give a picture of, of what this book is. Ecclesiastes 1.1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. All right, so this is the book of Ecclesiastes. We think of kind of in our present day context like a sermon being preached to uh, an assembly of people. All right, and this is King Solomon, who's a great king, and he's also here taking the role of preacher. 
addressing the hearers here. Okay, so what do we know about Solomon from 1 Kings? It tells us he was wiser than all other men. It tells us that he excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. It says the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Okay, so God chose to make Solomon the richest and wisest man on earth. Okay, so what, and what we're going to see him do in this sermon, if you read through Ecclesiastes as a whole, what you'll see is he'll pose a lot of questions. And a lot of these are life's most basic, most basic questions. Pretty simple questions that have been with mankind throughout time. There's this recurring theme that he comes back to. He says, what is there to gain under the sun? This verbiage, what is there to gain under the sun? Under the sun means here on earth, the created earth. He's kind of saying, what is the purpose of all this? And what it is, it's a great work of philosophy. It's a great work of philosophy. We think philosophy, it's like the study of, of existence, the study of purpose, the study of meaning, right? But what we see in our culture Philosophy is done in a very like, lofty academic way. It's kind of all about who can put the most sophisticated words and sentences together to come across like you're more enlightened or something. You, you want to be like way up here and make other people feel down there with your philosophical approach. If there is anyone in history who could have done that, Jesus certainly fits that. But Solomon was richer and wiser than anyone. He did not have to come down to the level of the people here, but he did. He chose to humble himself and do this philosophy, do this exploration of existence with people. He invited us in to see what he's seeing. This gives us a picture, a glimpse of Christ, right, who humbled himself, came down to earth to dwell among the people. It's a humble approach to invite us in. It, it kind of This book kind of reads like a journal. If you were to read someone's journal, you'd hear some kind of raw, you'd see some raw things. The journal of a believer would always kind of come back to the hope in Christ, though, right? That's what this book does. So if you look at, if you look at how he did this, he basically said, what is there to gain? What's the purpose? Is there purpose? Is there any joy here? Is there anything to gain? And how he did that, since he had access to everything, he said, I'm going to try all the things that God created, all the gifts that he's given us. I'm going to explore those to the extreme ends to see if there's something here that would satisfy me. If you look at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. It means it's meaningless. It's pointless didn't amount to anything. He was determined to figure out what is there to gain in this life under the sun. So he explored all the main categories of the gifts that God's given us. He had all the connections, had all the networking. If there was ever someone who could do this, who could truly explore the depths of God's gifts, the pleasures of the world, it would be him. And so we see this, we see him explore these, these, these good gifts but poor saviors, as we sometimes think of them. Laughter, pleasure, food, drink, art, nature, music, sex, work, and money and possessions. And that's kind of what we're focusing on today. If you look down Ecclesiastes 2.11, it says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, 
in the toil or the effort, energy, work that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. What he's found is that none of the stuff in its entirety could make him happy, could, could truly fulfill this depth and this urge and desire for satisfaction. He says that he had it all, he did it all, he explored it all, but he found there is nothing to gain in it. So instead of gain, fulfillment, satisfaction, contentment, he was left with discontentment, with grief, with sorrow, despair. But he invites us in to his exploration here. So we pick up now, if you want to look to chapter 5, verse 10, what Robin read for us. It gives us a little bit of context to what we're getting into here. Verse 10 <clears throat> says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is what Solomon's seeing. This is what his experience is on earth as he, as he observes. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is, the la- sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. We'll stop there. Church, this is something we know, we've experienced. Church, money cannot satisfy. I think we would all agree to that, but I wonder if our hearts and our lives reflect something different. Right? It's one of these true things that we know as Christians, but I wonder if our hearts kind of lead us into acting differently. I hope we can reflect and be open to that today. It can't satisfy. It was never intended to. Verse 10 talks about the reality of income levels. You think of wages, your salary. The problem when we desire money too much, maybe we'll have this financial goal. The problem with that is when we're not healthy, the problem is that we'll reach the goal. And then we'll be happy for maybe a day. And then what happens? Set a new one that's higher, right? It's the trajectory of being a little bit too in love with income and wages. He's saying here, you take that to the extreme, it will not satisfy. You'll never be content in today with what you have because you'll always be looking at the future. If I just had more money than this, right? That's what we think sometimes. Ah, we want to be generous, but, ah, but when we have more money, then we'll be generous. That's not true. Verse 11 points to, to possessions more, right? It's, it's, it's what, what can money buy us? It exposes that when our love of money manifests and that we love stuff and accumulating stuff, that the stuff won't satisfy us either. I'm not going to give examples. You can think of your own, right? You, you, you experience this. Hopefully you're being freed from that as you mature in Christ, that the accumulation of stuff does not satisfy like the world would want us to think, like commercials would want us to think, right? It only leads us to get more stuff, and the pattern continues. Well, I mentioned we're going to weave in and out of some well-known texts. Um, Jesus spoke a lot about money. He knew how destructive it can be to people, but also he knew it would be very relevant. and something we all have to deal with. Whether we like it or want to or not, we have to engage with it in some way. 
So it's very relevant to us. He spoke a lot about it. He would love for us to use it wisely instead of being enslaved to it. All right, so the first thing we're going to look at, this will be up on the screen for you. From Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, the accumulation of stuff, possessions, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then it goes on, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, let's think contentment there. If you're focused on the right things, your heart is set on the goodness of God and what he provides, your eye will be healthy. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right? It's the picture of, of, of seeking satisfaction in God or in money. We can't do both. And we get a, in verse 12 <clears throat> from Ecclesiastes 5, we get this picture of contentment. It points to the significance of an honest day's work. It says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. That's the picture of contentment. Satisfaction in where God has you today. You can work hard, do your responsibilities for the day, and you can sleep at night. But verse 12 says, despite the full stomach of the rich, he can't sleep at night. Why is that? We don't know exactly. It doesn't explain, but some things we could imagine with more money. We see he's rich. We see he's full. So he has what he needs. But with that stuff becomes more, comes more responsibility typically, right? He could be worried about the future. He could be just obsessed with money, thinking about more, how to get more, never content. That might be why he doesn't sleep. It could just be the reality of, of having a lot of responsibilities, you know, business owners, I know there's a lot of us in here, business owners, this can point, this, this can expose maybe, help us expose our hearts in business. We know in running businesses and having employees, it gives us, it gives us a lot of responsibility, it gives us a lot of influence, right? So there's great things, there's good potential things, but when money's the root, and then we're up late dealing with planning for tomorrow, dealing with employee challenges, all these things, if money's the desire, we'll start treating people poorly. There'll be burdens. We won't be leading in a way that God intended. So it's just pointing to the reality of when you have more responsibility, there's more that could go wrong, essentially. And we see that here in verse 12. Proverbs 23.4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. What is your motivation for the work that you're doing? All right, and then we go move on in our text back to Ecclesiastes 5. We'll see some examples here of foolish interactions with money. 13, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. 
This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. We stop there. 13, he calls it a grievous evil. Riches were kept by a man to his hurt, and they were lost in a bad venture. What this tells us in some way is his heart was not in the right place. Specifically with money. It seems like in his pursuit for more money, he lost it all. Essentially, his greed, his discontentment, caused him to lose it all. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Everyone who is hasty. If you think about that in terms of money, we think of maybe risky investments. We don't know what the bad venture was here in the text, but present day we might think of like get-rich schemes. We might think of things like the lottery. Man, you know how big that jackpot is. What, what if, right? What if we give some money away? 99 point whatever percent of people will lose more money in the lottery than will gain. But what if, right? What about risky investments? It's wise to invest, the Bible says. But what about a little risky ones that, that, that yeah, if, if, if it does this, and then, then, then it could be this. Gambling. Sports gambling is now legal in this state. We're going to hear stories, church, if we haven't already. It's so easy. It's a click of the button. Yeah, if this team does that, man, we could do this. What we see is the allure of a big payout, the deceitfulness of riches. We see that. We feel that. And usually it's the, the, the false hope of a fast payout that would help us categorize that as a foolish way to use money. What this is also showing, this might be tough, so bear with me here. We can talk about this outside here because I'm not going to go too deep, but I think what it shows us here is that it can be dangerous to keep too much. All right, in some very general terms, because again, we're not digging in to everything the Bible says about money and how to use it, but in general terms for us today, I would invite you to think about this idea that Jesus teaches more and he's more concerned with thinking, us thinking about how much to keep instead of how much to give. Can we think about that for a minute? It might sound backwards. I believe it's more about how much to keep instead of how much to give. What I mean is this. If we believe that God owns everything... If I asked, hey, does God, I'm not going to, everyone would say yes, because it's church and it's a pro-God question. But in your heart, if you truly believe that God owns everything, then it's not about how much to give to God. He owns it already. It's rather our posture with money should kind of be this open door. It's just kind of flowing through us naturally. That would be the rhythm. When we think about sacrificial giving, cheerful giving, right? The, The default should be kind of, using and keeping what we need to be responsible for who we need to be responsible for, a little bit of thought and consideration to the future so that we don't neglect our responsibilities. But really, it's this open door. We're not holding it so tightly. So I think he's more concerned with how much to keep. That's what I mean by that. 
That could be its own sermon, but I wanted to point that out a little bit because I think it's, it's, it's a little bit flipped on how we think about that sometimes. We see here in this text categories for providing for yourself, for your household. It mentions a son. It's a picture of neglect of a son. Through foolish engagement with money, the owner lost it all, essentially, and can't provide. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. This is a picture of wisdom with money. Responsibility and faithfulness. You know from past wisdom sermons, hopefully now we're starting to think in some general categories that when we think of wise and foolish and we think of fast and slow, the best pair is usually wise and slow. Those usually go together. Hasty. And fast typically accompany the fool. Such is the same with money. So the way of the wise with money, so we need to have some organization with it because we're, we're responsible with what we've been given. But I think we need to be giving freely, sacrificially, cheerfully because we know that God owns it all. And then we need to steward what we keep in a manner that cares who we're responsible for and gives some thought to the future. He goes on to explain this, the, the reality in verses 15 and 16 that we can't take it with us. You've heard this before maybe about rich people. It's like, ah, oh, well, you can't take it with them. But it's interesting. He calls this a grievous evil. What he means is he, he's, he's examining life under the sun on earth. He's seeing people work so hard. Legit hard work, good work. He's seeing them acquire all this stuff. Then he sees them die. It's like, wait, he can't, he can't take any of that with him? Like, oh, that doesn't seem right. That's kind of what he's saying here. It doesn't, something seems off by this. It seems like he should be able to take it with him. The message would be, don't waste your life acquiring a bunch of earthly possessions. And thinking about it that much, because it's all vanity. It's pointless. You will not be satisfied. It amounts to nothing. This is literally the picture of a baby coming into the world, naked with nothing. He's saying, they come with nothing. When you die, you leave the exact same way. With nothing. And verse 17 summarizes... The foolish interactions with money. It says, All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This picture of foolish engagement with money, discontentment in God, leads to not even being able to enjoy everyday life. Can't even eat in peace. I was reminded as a kid, um, before cell phones, I had a friend, and when I was at his house, uh, they would get calls, and they had like a caller ID thing. And I would ask him, hey, why didn't you answer the phone? He's like, oh, we're not allowed to answer it if it has this number in front of it, because that's the people that are coming after our money. It didn't really make sense. As I got older, I understood what was happening there. Large sums of debt, debt collectors coming at you. You get this picture. Maybe some have experienced this. 
right? You get the picture of you can't even eat. The phone rings. It's like, oh, no. Are they coming? Like, you just don't live in peace, always kind of wondering who's coming after me. That's the picture here. Much vexation and sickness and anger. This might make us think a little bit this past, these few verses of 1 Timothy 6, what Paul writes. We'll see another connection of money and contentment. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Remember Solomon's question, what is there to gain under the sun? Godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many fangs. The allure of riches, church, is powerful enough that some will wander away from the faith. Those familiar with the parable of the soils, right? Jesus talks about this. We're not going to read that all, but, but the recap, Jesus actually recaps this one and explains, and he says, the seed sown among the thorns was the one choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. The word was sown, it was received by someone with joy for a little bit, but then the allure, the enticement of money and stuff was too powerful, and they walked away from the faith into eternal separation. But we get done with verses 13 through 17. We looked at some foolish interactions with money and what it led to. And so Solomon's now going to propose the wise way to interact with money. And if we're looking at 13 to 17, we would probably expect, like, okay, he's probably going to give us some practical things to do that are wise, right? He just told us some foolish things. A guy risked it all. He lost it in a bad venture. So now what's the wise way to do? And as the wisdom literature does, it makes us slow down and think, because here's his solution. Behold, verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. We stop there. This is, uh, these few verses are ones we could spend years unpacking, I think. I'm not going to fully do it today. I'm sorry. Um, there's so much depth here. And like I said, this might seem like a strange way to explain wisdom with money. Because we don't see real events here as far as like what to do with money directly. Because I believe he has something bigger, more foundational that he wants us to see. That is this. Before you worry about the financial transactions, how to actually use the money. Right? Before you can be in a position to receive and just openly give, cheerfully, sacrificially, actually enjoy giving. Before you can get to that, you must first be content in God. That's what this is saying. To be content in God here 
is to be content with God's plan for your life, what he calls your lot. Your lot is like the hand you've been dealt. This is your life. This is your portion. This is what you get. God chose for you to be born into the situation that you were born into, and it's not an accident. Do we trust where God has us? Do you trust that God has you where you're supposed to be? And do you trust that He holds everything together, not only for the future, but for today? See, the focus here is on God being the author of your lot and the provider of the universe. It's a category we think of as God's providence. He's the provider for today. And I think a church like ours, I'm so thankful for, we are committed to sound doctrine here. Everything we do, we want it to be rooted in sound doctrine. The whole counsel of Scripture. Who is God? What does His Word teach? Right? And you know that we are. Those who have been with us for a while, we know that's, that's home base. We exist here, and we come together to worship God, to behold Him for who He is. And so this probably isn't a text. If, if someone asked me to go preach somewhere else with a people that I didn't know as well, I would probably not take this text, or if I did, I probably would not do it in this way. Because I think it can quickly blend into how the world talks about money and possessions. It could sound like that. If not rooted in sound doctrine, if not understanding God's plan for redemption, if we don't know that the end is really sealed and it is finished, if we don't know those things, I don't really want to talk about the gifts and enjoying life that much because that's what the world says. Then it becomes more about us and our ideas for today. So I know I purposely, as I prayed through, I believe God had us here, but I purposely knowing who I'm talking to, I don't have to worry as much about the redemption, what comes next, how the end is going to be. And I also don't worry as much about the creation. I think we can wrap our minds around creation. We know a lot about creation. But what about the now? What about God's providence? Do you trust that God has you where you're supposed to be? Do you trust that he holds everything together today. I think he's saying here, if you truly do trust that God has you where you're supposed to be, then you'll be able to live a life enjoying the normal everyday rhythms of life. I think that's the word here. I think that's the the message. Verse 19, if you look there, it says, God has given us money and possessions to deal with. We have to do something with them. We're responsible But instead of just being like, I don't know, this seems bad and throwing them all away, it says he's given us the power to enjoy them and that it's a gift. And it comes back to like, well, how much do we keep? Because that, that can get unhealthy quickly. But I think for us, committed to sound doctrine, knowing about redemption, we may need to hear this. 
we may need to hear that God has approved for us that we can enjoy food today. You're allowed to enjoy it. But the reason you're allowed to enjoy it is because you know He's the provider of it and He's with you as you enjoy it. And He holds the future. You can eat in peace. You can be in the moment. And then the same thing will apply for tomorrow. But, but he says, you don't have to worry about that yet. It'll be, it'll be there for you to enjoy tomorrow. What this means is you can enjoy your work and responsibilities, what it calls your toil in the text. Your toil is your work, your responsibilities in life. You can actually enjoy your job. You can enjoy caring for kids. You're able to do that if you know that your kids are a blessing and not a burden, right? But you can experience God when you're fully present with your kids. You know His Word says this. If, if, if you trust Him, that means being present with them, and you will get great joy. It doesn't mean being tied up with other things and then being burdened by them. God has approved for you to enjoy your work and your responsibilities. You can enjoy work when you know that God created you with talent and abilities to use your hands, to use your minds, to use your heart. When we forget that He's the provider of those things, we quickly get off track. When we remember God's the creator of these things and that He holds it all together currently, right now, today, it will go well for you because you won't be worrying about the future. You won't worry about the future. You won't get stuck in the past. And you won't compare yourselves to others in the present. I think these are the things that hold us back from accepting our lot. Contentment in Christ is that as long as God is with you, it is gain for you to accept your lot. What is there to gain was the question, though. What is there to gain? Because when we miss this, when we're stuck in the past or the present, comparing other, to other people and situations, or stuck in the future, what starts to happen is we'll think that He's not there for us. We'll think that he's not there with us. Maybe he's distancing himself from us. Like we're the victim. Like, woe is me. God, I feel so far from you. Just where are you? As you breathe in air that he created. As you're eating food. Where are you, God? Food that he provided. We'll be blind to his creation and his providence. It'll keep us from enjoying his gifts. And what this means in terms of money is that it's not really about the money. Outside of money, that means it's not really about your circumstances. With money, that might mean poor or wealthy is not actually the issue then. But having empowerment from God to accept and enjoy whatever we have is the issue. 
right? In broader terms, it's not about our circumstances. Look with me, Ecclesiastes 7, 14. It says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Church, I know there are days that are great. It says in those good days of prosperity, you be thankful. You remember why those are, why they are. It's not because you're great. Solomon was made the way he was. It says God did that. When it comes to money, the wisdom literature of God's Word tells us that one of the constant realities of life throughout all of history is that rich and poor exist in all societies. That's just a real thing. And they all have equal standing in God's eyes. Proverbs 22.2 in the NIV says, Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. It's the great unifier. We know the rich have more responsibility sometimes. There's easier ways to stumble. We know that. But they have the same access to God. I don't know if we feel comfortable saying that or believing that. We think of things like blessed are the poor in spirit, which is definitely true. It's a different category than what we're talking about. But I think what happens sometimes is we get stuck comparing our financial situation to someone else's, and that would not be wise interaction with money because it wouldn't be contentment in Christ with where he has us. And that goes both ways. There's wishing that you were richer, which we saw earlier in the text, but also this other category, maybe sometimes called like the poverty gospel or something. It's, it's this incorrect view of thinking you can only experience God if you're poor. Or this way of thinking, if there's oppression somewhere in the world, how dare you find joy in anything today? Right? The classic thing, at least for my childhood, is like there's starving kids in Africa. And that's true. I've seen them. I've ministered to them. It's not from wisdom that we would say, well, the poorest Americans would be the richest in Haiti. Unless the poor move to Haiti, they are not rich. They are here in this culture. So they are poor here, right? There's rich and poor in every culture. The cultures that are given more possessions and money Guess what? You have more responsibility. But what this does when we think about starving kids in Africa, which again is true, I don't mean to be insensitive here at all, but it's, it's something real we can picture. The question I think we have to ask ourselves is, is that fair? Is it fair that there's starving kids somewhere and that we will go and have our, our choice of what to eat for lunch?
Our hearts want to say, no, that's not fair. And out of the compassion, I understand that, and, and, and I would understand that sentiment. But if we're leaning into God's Word, what He says about accepting our lot with where He has us, we have to say, for some reason unknown to us in His plan, His sovereign plan, that it's fair the way that He sees it. And if we have freedom to enjoy His gifts, we better exercise that freedom and remember where the gifts come from. That's a tough category, though. It makes sense. We feel for them. What, what, what should we do then? When God puts things on our hearts and awareness on our hearts, we can't do it all. There's millions of nonprofits and organizations. We can't do it all. But as the Lord leads us to different things throughout the world in our community, we better act on it in whatever way that means for your life. Time, money, whatever it is, that is how we would do something about people in need. We do it in a cheerful way, in a way that doesn't put the focus on us. So God's word doesn't align with this way of thinking that like, if someone else doesn't have something, then how dare we enjoy it? But some people act this way. When people get in this mode, they make other people feel like they shouldn't be enjoying life. But these people typically don't live with joy. It's sad. It's a sad picture of a misunderstanding. You may think of like Debbie Downer from the old Saturday Night Live, right? People hanging out, enjoying it, and she always kind of comes with this weird fact. It's like really depressing. It's like, ah. Right? Like, do we enjoy sunshine? I think we do, especially when we meet in a dungeon room like this, right? It feels good to walk out. It's like, ah, the sun and the breeze. So if you walk out with your group today, like, ah, some fresh air. Doesn't this feel good? It'd be like the guy that, ah, hold on a second. Pulls up radar of his phone. Everyone, no, uh, no. In Argentina, it's actually, there's thunderstorms and it's cloudy. So no, no. You're still going to enjoy the sun knowing what's going on in Argentina? It's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of the thing, right? When you're around people like that, it's like, I think I'm allowed to delight in this a little bit. I'm not hoping in the sun, but can I just take some deep breaths and enjoy it? By us actively pursuing the enjoyment of his everyday gifts, we're demonstrating that we're accepting our lot. We're demonstrating that we're trusting in him as the author of the past, present, and future. Contentment in Christ is as long as God is with you, it's gain for you to accept your lot, right? And to be clear, what this doesn't mean is, I just sit around and let life happen to me. That's not accepting your lot. It's not a lazy pursuit. Let's look back here. You see the words, what are the words? Let's see. Yes, find enjoy, enjoyment, verse 18, in all the toil... That's the work and responsibilities with which one toils, with which one works, acts under the sun. This is an active pursuit. This is not a passive, just let life, whatever happens, happens. That would be foolish. That would be lazy. So we're not talking about that. But we've touched on the future. We've touched on kind of the present in comparison. What about the past? How can we get stuck in the past? I'm going to 
tell you a story here, then we'll end with the words of Jesus here as we wind down. But I began genuinely, I would say genuinely pursuing God at about age 21, late in college. And after I graduated a year later, I got to go to the beach for a couple days, which is a beautiful place for me to go. Some of you, I know mountains, some like camping and being gross and dirty. I like the beach. I like the beach. You see the, the bigness of God. You look out, the water, the expanse. You can't see the end of it. Makes me feel small. Makes me feel just, just right. Get the breeze. Get the birds. But what happened is I, about a year earlier is when I really started pursuing God. And I was at a point where I couldn't get enough of his word. I just loved it. It's like, man, if I could just get a day or two. And that's what I got to do on the beach. Like two full days of reading his word, reflecting on who he is. He was revealing, <clears throat> excuse me, revealing things to me. I was singing, which I'd never really done in that way before. It was kind of weird, but it felt right. I was praying in different ways. Point being, it was a beautiful spiritual experience. It was very, very fruitful. What happened, though, years later, as life changed a little bit, I was single back then. I had graduated college. I didn't have a job at that time. I really had no responsibilities. I could think back to that fondly. Now I have wives, or Am I disqualified? Is that it? I I looked at the word kids when I said wives. Now I have a singular wife. I have kids. Man, the sad thing from today is that's what you're all going to remember. That's it. Man. Ah. It is my lot for today. Um point is, I have responsibilities now that I didn't back then. I have a few jobs. I have a house. I have neighbors, friends that look to me. A lot more responsibility. And those are all gifts from God. See, contentment in God for today, for me, would mean to lean into those relationships and responsibilities. And God says he'll fill us with joy and we'll sleep well if we do that. I think sometimes when we're stuck in the past, though, it's childish of us. It's childish maybe to expect that things should be how they used to be. Or if you grew up a certain way, if you're clinging to that childhood experience, you don't really want to grow up, maybe. Things shouldn't be, if you're growing in Christ and maturing as a person, things should not be as easy as they used to be. This is his plan for us. This is sanctification. And what that means is, as you lean into the today where God has you, he actually can reveal deeper things about himself. As you go through trials in these new relationships, new situations, he grows us, right? He grows us. We have to act, though. We have to lean into those things instead of cowering away and like, yeah, man, it used to be so easy. We're no longer children, some of us. We've grown up into maturity. Will we lean into what he has for us today, into his gifts? Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. 
This is a really helpful verse for me. I didn't, I didn't know this. I didn't know that it was unwise to like desire the past, right? I think we're to look to the past, learn from those experiences, be thankful to God, but to like yearn for those or expect that it should be that way is not the call of wisdom. So I hope that's helpful for you as it's been for me. But we look here, verse 20, back to Ecclesiastes 5.20, we wrap up. It says, For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is not talking about someone who's forgetful. It's not talking about someone who's stupid, who can't remember things. He will not much remember it because... He's not occupied and drawn to it in an unhealthy way. He's occupied with God. And to be occupied with God is to taste joy. Right? It's the simple things. God created the food, and he is with me as I enjoy it. The more we remember that, the better it is for us. And see, that's why it makes it no more, it doesn't make this about money. Money's not the end-all, be-all here. The interaction with money will reveal the condition of our hearts, but he's showing the solution is to trust that God has you where you're supposed to be. Trust that he has sovereign control over everything that comes after today. Contentment in Christ is that as long as God is with you, it is gain for you to accept your lot. So as we go through life, rich or poor isn't the issue. Having empowerment from God to accept And enjoy it is the issue. He is the author, church. It starts with him. We respond to his call. We act according to who he is. That empowerment came through the cross. Our hope rests there. We're going to get back into Romans. We're going to talk about hope in the upcoming weeks. And it'll be sweet to do that. We know our hope is there. We know it's finished. The promise is sealed. We have the Holy Spirit who now helps us choose to enjoy his gifts today. And King Jesus sits on the throne today, right now as we speak. Amen? He is alive. And so we end today with his words. They'll be up on the screen. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray.